Welcome to the Photo Banter Podcast. Um, before we get into the Dan Winters interview today, I actually want to tell you about a new image transfer tool I've been using lately called PicDrop. Uh, PicDrop's a really great tool for when you need to send off those files to your clients or whoever you're working with. Uh, you can create private galleries, different folders for whatever projects you're working on. And it's really great. Your clients can actually write notes on the photos you send to them and rate them. And for me, I've been using it for a little over a month now. And it's really just kind of helped me keep everything organized in one spot um, for years I was using like Dropbox and we transfer and things like that um, but with pick drop it's actually designed by photographers so they really understand what photographers need and like I said I, I've been enjoying it can't say enough about it and actually with today's podcast if you use the promo code photo banter you're gonna get three months free when you sign up at pickdrop.com um, so definitely go check it out and let me know what you guys think like I said I've been enjoying it and uh, remember to enter the promo code photo banter and you'll get three Three months free when you sign up at pickdrop.com and without further ado we'll get into the dan winters interview here thanks so much welcome to the photo banter podcast i'm your host alex gagne and on today's podcast i speak with photographer dan winters dan has worked with clients such as wired magazine gq espn and netflix to name a few dan has photographed everyone from barack obama to tupac shakur Sandra Bullock, and Warren Buffett, to name a few. In this interview, I speak to Dan about his love of aerospace, an early shoot of Denzel Washington for the New York Times, as well as his experience photographing both U.S. presidents, George Bush and Barack Obama. Dan is a photographer whose work I've been a fan of for years, so it was a real pleasure getting a chance to travel down to Texas and interview Dan in his really cool studio that was actually formerly a general store. It's over 115 years old. This is a really unique space. And uh, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy this one. And thanks so much for listening. All right, well, Dan Winters, how you doing, man? I'm doing well. Thanks for coming down. No, thank you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, let me come down to your really cool studio. Very, 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 very happy you're here. You, you made quite uh, quite an effort to get down here. Yeah, so you, you get a chance to talk to Dan Winters, uh, I'm going to make the trip, man. Right. Well, thank you. I appreciate um, it. And definitely, i got to give a big thank you to your wife, Catherine, for help uh, set this up. Um, have you guys always worked together? Yeah, we've worked together for coming up on 28 years. Oh, wow. That's awesome. Um, yeah, we've been married 27, and... Uh, and uh yeah she uh, i don't know i i don't i shudder to think what my life would be without her i know it would be a much different path than the one i've taken for sure that's awesome man mm-hmm. like yeah because how important is she like into i guess even just the photography business aspect she does everything yeah. yeah she takes care of everything yeah and i just make pictures <laughs> have you did you work with any like reps or anything prior to that this is you guys never had a rep um always stayed away from reps because i was working a lot so it never seemed like I needed one. And then when I met her, I was on an assignment actually for Vanity Fair in Los Angeles. And she was my weekend contact because she was in the film industry. And she was a post-production supervisor of a film uh, called uh, Let Sleeping Dogs Lie. And uh, the two principal actors, Tom Sizemore and Dylan McDermott, were I was photographing them. And the director, the director was Charles Finch. Peter Finch's son, and um, she was doing post-production supervision on it, and they were doing looping. They were doing ADR all weekend, so she was my contact, which she'd never been a contact for a photo shoot. It was an odd thing for her, even, you know? Serendipity. Yeah, so uh, I went a day early 
we, we kind of started flirting on the phone a little bit. Like I lived in New York and she lived in LA and we kind of established really quickly that we were both single. And, you know, so of course there was a little bit of expectation. And so <laughs> she offered to help me scout okay. near where the shoot, uh, near where the ADR session was taking place. So I went to her house and, um, you know, to pick her up to go scout and she was in her garage sweeping, looking beautiful. And, uh, it was just inseparable since that day. So that's awesome. Pretty interesting. Man. Yeah, actually. That's really cool. And, uh, you know, I was excited and I, I know you're really into like uh, aerospace and everything. Um, so let's get down to brass tacks, Dan. Did the moon landing happen? Oh, yeah. what, what do you say to those conspiracy <laughs> theories? You know, it's a funny, it's funny you asked me that question because when I speak, uh, I always ask the audience when I get into kind of my aerospace, like, uh, section of of my my lecture because I do a lot of aerospace photography. Um, I always ask the audience if there's anyone in the audience that uh, uh, doubts the moon landing took place, and you, invariably you'll get a, a hand or two. And I always say, "See me after," because I'm always curious, like what their argument is. Like you know, it's a it's it's kind of preposterous. You know, it's like a flat Earth argument, like. It's really easy to go online, and if you're looking for confirmation bias, like find enough people that are telling you yeah. the Earth is flat or the moon landing was a hoax, to kind of like affirm your sort of like belief, even though even if it's in its infancy. So, people always have you know information about it, and it's always very very easy to explain to them. And to a degree, you know, I don't look down at all on someone like that. I feel like I I try to educate them mm-hmm. and say, okay. The reason there aren't any stars is because the latitude of the film would not allow for the stars to be exposed when you're exposing with daylight. The reason this happened is because of this. The reason this happened is because of this. Because there are all these, you know, questions that they'll ask, like, oh, the Van Allen radiation belt, you couldn't go through it. It's like, well, actually, it's pinched in two places, and you can go through it. Yeah. You're exposed to radiation, but... You know, that's yeah. just a part of space travel. And the flag was one. I remember it was yeah. like the flag waving, but right. they, they made it with like wires or something. Yeah, it was uh, made with an aluminum rod. Yeah. And it was actually a part of a, a handle of another implement that they used. And then when they finished using that implement, then they used it as the flagpole. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you think about a vacuum, no atmosphere at all. If you touch the flag, if you flick it even, it's not going to stop moving for a while until yeah. the tinselary... Uh, uh, characteristics of that rod like uh, come to equilibrium right so it looks like it's sitting there waving actually it's not at all waving it's just wiggling around there's tons of footage of astronauts at one frame per second which is incredibly accelerated moving around and that flag it looks like it's made out of rock Mm -hmm. it's so steady so you know it's it's really simple (laughs) i know i know it was just funny i said to ask you it's just funny to think about yeah um what is it about the aerospace stuff that kind of interests you have you always just been kind of interested in it since you're a kid or like yeah you know i grew up so i'm 57 or i'll be 57 this year and i kind of grew up in an era where i i honestly feel like you know the heroes were kind of more in the sciences there was still a lot of like film actor heroes and stuff but they always represented you know like you think about john wayne like john wayne represented to a degree like the military because his films were made with the cooperation of the military and it was all and and you know certainly all of his westerns but um uh jimmy stewart you know was a uh 
you know, B-24 pilot in the Second World War, and he was, uh, you know, he exited the Air Force National Guard as a general. And, um, you know, there were there were sort of these heroic figures that we grew up with, and certainly the astronauts in the 60s. I mean, I, my, 60s was kind of my coming of age, right? I was born in 62. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I kind of witnessed, you know, Mercury, Gemini, Apollo, Apollo Soyuz, Skylab, shuttle, all those things were kind of part of, like, my experience. And, um, you know, I was always very, very inspired by that. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I feel like my purpose or my role in flight and manned spaceflight and flight is much more uh, the observer role. Like, I have no interest whatsoever in, I don't like flying in small aircraft. I get sick. Uh, I would have no interest really in going into space. Um, although, if I were offered that free of charge, which that would never be the case, I would probably, t- I would reluctantly, like, because, you know, I know how special that would be, t- get- take someone up on it. But, yeah, I, I, I feel like as an observer and a chronicler, like, that's where, that's my role. And I'm grateful that I've done so much of it that NASA acknowledges that, you know, I am out there, like, promoting sort of like their mission and i feel like it's been a really great partnership um yeah like in your book uh road to seeing uh, which i recommend to any uh like young photographer or anybody in general really um you kind of talked about nasa you're like people don't even know the roster anymore for you it almost thought it was like some people are like sports fans you were talking about, like this is my roster of like it was just so funny the way you described it you yeah, know it's true <laughs> i mean when i was a kid you could you know i could name like the majority of the astronauts that were sort of like had flight status mm-hmm. at NASA, you know, and uh, and my friends could, and we all built models, and we all like flew model rockets, and you know there was a there was a there was definitely like a more I feel honestly like my youth there was much more of like an internal dialogue going on there was a much more experiential dialogue you know the idea of like crafting making things mm-hmm. you know spending a bunch of time building a rocket going out into a field and launching it and having that experience you know that kind of scientific experience i think that was much more a part of my youth and i'm not not saying like across the board to generalize that that was everyone's but you know you know i I raised bees i still raise bees i raised bees i started when i was nine raising bees you know it's like the experience of like the biological sciences and the experience of sort of like the physical sciences Mm -hmm. was always something very interesting to me so yeah, I mean, you know, as photographers, we're dependent on subject matter, right? We can't, like, photographs don't, like, conjure themselves out of the ether, right? We have to, like, point our camera at something. Mm-hmm. So we make choices. Like, what are we going to point our camera at, you know? Yeah, definitely. That's kind of interesting thing. Like, looking at your photography, it seems like you've really taken, like, your interests and your hobbies and really kind of applied it to your work. Like, it's like your aerospace or your bees or uh, that's just, you've always just kind of, like, tried to find your hobbies and bring it into your photography work pretty much. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. I mean, you know, Jay Maisel said something really interesting. Um, and if you haven't seen Stephen Wilkes film, uh, uh, called Jay myself, mm-hmm. which just premiered at the, uh, New York, uh, documentary film festival. I went to the premiere. It was amazing. Um, Jay was like a great hero of mine growing up, um, as well. Um, but Jay said this his incredible quote by him, which I've always loved, which is, uh, if you want to become a better photographer, become a more interesting person. Yeah. And that's so true, right? It's like curiosity fuels photography, right? The idea of, you know, 
becoming aware and then interested in something to the point where you want to like create like a lasting image of it. I mean, that's, there's a profundity to that, you know, I think, you know, whether it's skating or, you know, bees or aerospace or whatever it is, you know, the idea of like honestly looking at a subject and then sort of like tackling it photographically is, you know, we were talking earlier about weddings, you know, it's like weddings are, you know, Larry Fink's photographs of weddings are like unbelievable. Right. (laughs) So you said, I remember you saying like something like most photographers wouldn't want you to know that you shot weddings, but look at what's possible. Like what Larry does is like mind blowing. Right. So, you know, it's just about how you apply yourself to that subject. Yeah. I think that's like the coolest thing about photography is like what other thing like tool is going to give you access to all these things. And you don't even need to be like this successful photographer to get access to things. You could be like, if you approach people the right way, like if you want to photograph your local pizzeria or whatever, if you kind of engage with those people, I think that's, it just opens so many doors, you know? Mm-hmm, you're absolutely right. Um, it's a unique experience for most people to be photographed, like, with any kind, in any kind of elevated way, like, as a professional, you know? And I'm mindful of that when we go, when we shoot people that are not sort of luminaries, but are, like, kind of normal folk, which, you know, I do a fair amount of that. When we do those pictures, you know, I, I'm really mindful that... You know, I have the awareness that even though this is like another day at the office for me, which is true, it's a special event for people mm-hmm. and can be. You know, yeah. a lot of people are photographed often and it's a chore, yeah. but some people are photographed never. Like it'll be one time in their life that they're photographed like, per, you know, professionally. Yeah. So, um, but you are right. You know, you can kind of apply it to anything. You can go to a construction site and do portraits of the workers or what it, you know it's the endless. sky's the limit endless. Yeah, it's endless you're um, absolutely right it's endless yeah it's kind of actually some of my favorite work of yours is like you have some really cool photos of like welders or like scientists and you know the one thing i'm kind of curious about like obviously you you've shot a lot of celebrities but that's not all that you do mm-hmm. um do you find it harder to make a, a compelling photograph portrait of a, a well-known person a celebrity or just an unknown person do you feel like there's a it's a difficult thing one way or the other yeah i mean if you think about like if it's like a you know oftentimes sort of for example like you know if we'll break down celebrities into sort of like luminaries in society right so sports figures music musical figures actors etc um you could say politicians to a degree as well just you know um there's an awareness uh, of the process that I find a lot of people like that have because they've been exposed to it a lot. Um, and so it's easier to get inside of them quickly. Mm-hmm. Like they'll, they're comfortable, first of all, sitting down. Oftentimes, if you're shooting someone that's not kind of adept at being photographed, getting them to the point where you're actually making photographs that are compelling can take a lot longer. Um, so as far as easy goes, yeah, I would say it's easier probably to shoot sort of like celebrities it's easier um you know camera awareness is a huge thing right off the bat um but you know i think photographing just normal folk is you know i don't know i think the key to sort of success in the kind of portrait world in general is just the ability to kind of have a connection to someone and and one that's not uh contrived yeah, I think for me, like I, like I said before, the, the photos I really love of yours are like, might be like your friends or like the welders, like I said, or like people you don't know. Is with celebrity photography, when you look at it, a lot of times you already have like a context to it. You already know, you already have a story in your mind because you might have seen their movie or listened mm-hmm. to their music. And 
the thing I'm drawn to is like when you're shooting these everyday people, it's more you don't know about them, so you can kind of create a story in mm-hmm. your mind. You know, mm-hmm. it's not really a question, but I've always just kind of no. It's a good observation. Yeah. I mean, you do, and also you know, part of it is too is like you know talking about that person you know like yeah. what's what's your life what's your daily life you know what does your typical day look like mm-hmm. give me a sense of you know like what how you navigate the earth like regularly you know um just to get an idea of you know a connecting and 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 you know out of that conversation will probably come connections i mean there's a reason i think that you know movie stars are exalted in our society and it's not a new thing i I hear people talk about like the cult of celebrity and this and that and that's absolutely a falsehood you know this if you look at a photograph of a magazine rack from 1936 almost the entire thing is like movie star magazines it's unbelievable i've seen this before and i have a lot of like old photo plays and this and that and the reason i think is that we first of all like we need to keep telling the story like the story is important for us you know the hero myth whatever it is right just like success against all odds you know the guy gets the girl whatever it is tragedy Mm -hmm. comedy uh we all relate to that and when we have an actor in a film that helps us with that story, right? Tells us that story. And then you saw that movie in Massachusetts and I saw that movie in LA. You and I have a shared experience. We can talk about that movie through that actor. We weren't even, we were 3000 miles apart, but we still have a shared experience. And so I think that that's, uh, you know, probably like the driving force behind kind of the idea of like actors being exalted. And it's not a new thing, like I said, you know, and I don't, buy into the whole like you know all we focus on now is like celebrities yeah there is a focus on that i think the thing that's really that we should really be mindful of okay isn't like actors that are actively trying to tell a story it's these youtube you know 16 million followers that chicks that like do stupid shit on youtube and they get 16 million followers it's mindless that's the dumbing down there's like there's like yeah youtube is a it is wild it, or it's instagram wild. any of that stuff there's, there's like videos like people uh i'm gonna eat forty thousand calories yeah, yeah. and watch my video like subscribe <laughs> it's the dumbest thing ever yeah. i've seen some of these things on instagram too there's one Oh, there's some some of these videos that are just they're just <laughs> the stupidest things in the world, and these kids just eat them up, and and it that really is the dumbing down. I I I I, I was reading this article about music and uh, music becoming. I think the headline caught me. It was like in the Atlantic, and it was talking about how like music has become dumber, and they basically take like notes and length of songs and stuff and they came up with an algorithm yeah and like it, it, it like the 70s is where it peaked and then it started to go down and now it's like they were calling it like this time that we're in yep. is like this really dumb down like you know music so it's funny you know my son I will play say- like you know it was that one song he's been playing for like i'm riding on my horse it's like some song. Oh, it just came out, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It was with Billy Ray Cyrus. I don't it's know. like Old Town Road. It's, 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 it was just one of those things that yeah, went viral or whatever. Dumbest song. Um, but I talk about music with my brother a lot because people say that. But there still is amazing music being made. Like 100%. Gary Clark Jr., a Texas guy. Right around the corner. I know Gary. Amazing people. Yeah. Gary lives right around the corner Yeah, from here. And I know Gary, and he's a really great guy. In fact, he's going to come over here. I have some old wire recorders, and he's going to come over here, and we're going to record him with my wire recorders Yeah, out in the house. Or I'm going to go over. He has a barn. We might record in the barn. Mm-hmm. There is incredible music being made, and there always was. Mm-hmm. So like, if you go to an 80s party, for example, right? 
and people are supposed to dress up in the 80s, right? So the girls dress up like flash dance, or they dress up like hair band rockers, and the guys dress up, right? So yeah. that's supposed to be emblematic of the 80s. Yeah. So that's all kind of, in my opinion, like kind of the worst part of the 80s, right? We had like REM and the replacements, and we had incredible music in the 80s as well, you yeah. know? And uh, that's sort of, a, that part's overlooked, so... You know, Tom Waits came into his own in the 80s. You know, it's just like, it's just funny where we shine our light. But, you know, mm-hmm. usually popular, you know, pop music, you know, and popular culture stuff is where we kind of identify like a time period, you know, yeah. and that's not necessarily, that's a generalization of that time period. Yeah, but I'm right with you about Gary, profoundly talented guy. Yeah, there's, just, there's a lot of music. You just got to search it out more because they're not going to get on top 10 radio in your car pretty much. Uh, but yeah, it's just... You just got to search it out. But uh, speaking about films and stuff, being that you're a big uh, aerospace guy, did you see the recent Apollo 11 movie? I have seen it projected three times. What did you think? I, for me, I it was like, for anybody who hasn't seen it, go check it out. Apollo 11, it was like a master class in film editing. So anybody that hasn't seen it, go see Apollo 11 because it was a master class in film editing. <laughs> I'm going to echo your sentiments. For real, though. Because it's phenomenal. Yeah. It's absolutely unbelievable. And it's playing... In one theater here, and I may go a fourth time <laughs> to see it just because it needs to be seen on a screen. Yeah. And I know that. And, you know, I feel like films, we carry them with us in our life. And that experience of seeing it on a screen versus seeing it even on like one of my big TVs at home is going to be profoundly different. Mm-hmm. In fact, I pre ordered it yesterday. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Well, I, on I, Amazon. Okay. And um, I'm looking forward to getting the Blu ray. What do you take the most away from watching that film? Um, well, I mean, a bunch of things. The music blew my mind. I thought the music was incredible. Um, obviously, the, the editing, what I liked about it. Now, I will preface all this by saying that Al Reinert was a very close friend of mine. He passed away three months ago. He directed For All Mankind, which in my opinion is still like the the documentary about the Apollo program. Mm-hmm. It's uh, What Al did was he was given access to original film at NASA. They set up an optical printer in Houston on site. They took the original material. They made 35 millimeter internegs out of it. They sent it off to be processed in New York. Uh, He worked on it for eight years. He interviewed uh, of the living astronauts at the time. He interviewed the majority of them. And he used all this Re, I will, I'll use the term remastered. That usually applies to like a, a digital term, but remastered footage with narration only by astronauts, no talking heads at all, and music by Brian Eno. And it's mind blowing. Yeah. It's it's mind blowing. It Owls is a poem, and uh, Apollo Eleven to me is a journey. Okay, it's two different films. But uh, if I had the choice, Al's definitely would win out. It's just, it's like, it's poetic. Literally, I've watched that film and and honestly wept. And I actually wept tears the first time I watched Apollo 11 with my wife uh, when the launch took place. I physically started crying when the launch took place. The thing that I took away from it was, uh, you know, I didn't grow up in that era. This it brought the community together. Like mm-hmm. the footage of like people were this like they were outside in this like watching. It was just like thousands of people and it's yeah. everywhere. Yeah. And I can't really think of like coming over here. I was trying to think of like a thing nowadays. 
maybe like the Fourth of July fireworks or something yeah. that brings the community together. But I don't know. I, well, and that was worldwide. Yeah. So I that know. big monitor was at Trafalgar Square in London, which they showed in the film, and uh, they had one at uh, at um, at uh, Times Square, and uh, all over the world. I'm sure in Paris they talked about it the one the woman in in uh, paris talking about how she felt like the americans she was sure the americans could do it mm-hmm. the um yeah it the were it really united the world i mean that was the whole point of the mission you know the mission patch that they wore on their on their uh spacesuits the apollo 11 patch all it said on it was apollo 11 and it had an eagle with an olive branch and the mission patches prior to that and after that all of them had the crew members. So that technically should have said Armstrong, Aldrin, Collins, and they kept it off intentionally because they wanted that mission to be for all mankind, which is the whole kind of like the gist of that. And actually Neil, you know, Neil was such a great choice in my opinion for the for the part of Armstrong, I mean for the uh, for the role of first man on the moon because he did have a depth to him that ex- that sort of like for me transcended like the test pilot stereotype you know if you think about like his words right it's one small step for man one giant leap for mankind and then you think about pete conrad apollo 12 the next guy out the door right he said oh that may be a may have been a little step for neil but it was a big one for a little guy like me like that is completely lacking profundity to me and that's a moment when we need profundity you have to put to put aside your like comical self or whatever it is and i'm so glad that pete conrad who was scheduled actually to be the first guy conrad was meant to be the first guy oh wow um i mean he was meant they they didn't know who was going to be because it was based on the success of each mission yep and so 11 was okay it's going to be go time uh i don't think it was an accident that neil was kind of slotted there but i'm really grateful that he was the the one and i think the other astronaut that i that i always really loved and respected was dave scott which was apollo 15 certainly gene cernan um but dave scott was kind of amazing because he really took it upon himself to study fiercely study geology and really really pushed for the landing site that they used in the apennines to try to kind of paint a picture of like the origins of the moon and you know 15 still stands as the most successful scientific mission with regards to like data collected okay and so even though there were 17 missions or up to 17 was and that was actually jack schmidt who was a geologist okay in 17 17 was cernan and schmidt on the moon but uh and then first man which was you, ryan gosling which shot i shot the, the poster, poster for um that blue my mind i thought ryan killed it cinematography was great too beautiful beautifully shot beautiful 16 they yeah. shot super 16 oh did they really I didn't yeah really yeah. That. yeah they shot super 16 yeah we were on set for five days and they shot super 16 and then as soon as they opened the hatch on the limb uh it was imax okay so the whole time he was on the moon it was in imax and then it went back to super 16 oh wow i didn't realize yeah, that. which is interesting yeah you'll notice a 
pretty distinct shift. Yeah, I got to watch that again then. I didn't realize that. Yeah, it's it's incredible. I thought that film was just absolutely incredible. So you guys shot the movie poster while they're in production at the same time. Yeah, we shot second to the last day of production. Uh, uh, oh, actually, we shot Ryan's last day. We oh, shot wow. his last day, yeah. What, like, going in, because like, when I look at that photo, like, how do you approach a shoot like that, like a movie poster? Like, is it a different approach than, like, an editorial shooter? Yeah, it is. Um, first of all, they spend a lot of money on them. So it's really uh, kind of fleshed out before you get there, right? A lot of times editorial shoots, I'm kind of like, I'll wing it. Pretty much every time I wing it. Um, in terms of like what I want to walk away with, I just kind of let the day dictate itself, you know? Um, but a picture, uh, a thing, a thing like that was there were a bunch of comps that, uh, were signed off on and we looked at all of them. We had some meetings prior to, I had a meeting in LA at Universal and then we, we talked and then I talked to Ryan on the phone a couple times and we talked about the comps back and forth. Um, and, uh, did they give you the script? Do you like, or anything yeah. like that? So you'll read that right away. Yeah. I read the script. Uh huh. Um, and, uh, and so the cool thing about first man was that it was a single individual. We didn't shoot any of the cast. Mm. I would have loved to have shot Claire, to be honest with you, just cause I think she's so fascinating looking and such a talented actress. But, um, yeah, all for all, for this, all they wanted is Ryan on the poster. So we did a lot of stuff and some of this stuff was really amazing and it never got used. And, you know, they used that picture in my opinion, uh, there was another image uh, of Ryan in the capsule that I preferred, that Ryan preferred, that Damien preferred, that Universal felt didn't pique people's interest as well. You know, that poster, you haven't seen the film, correct? I have. You have. So that poster is not the film. That poster is like a superhero movie, yeah. in my opinion. But they did another poster I saw with your launch shot. Yeah. I don't know what they yes. used it for, but I saw it. So they used that, and they also used a photograph of my Armstrong suit. Okay. For uh, those were teasers. Okay. And that was one of those things where they said, hey, you know, we pulled this off your website. Can we, you know, and I was like, yeah, that's, 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 that, that would be awesome. So that kind of came from Ryan and Damien, to be honest with you, because I had given, I've known Ryan since he was 21, so he's 36 now, so a while, and I had given him, he called me when he got the part, and I kind of helped him a little bit, like talked to him about it and this and that, and uh, I sent him a bunch of prints uh, for like inspiration, uh, like 11 by 14s, and um, so some of those, uh, so him and Damien, I sent Damien and he both prints and he, um, they had him up, Damien had him up in his production office and Ryan had him framed and up in the house and he was kind of living with them. And he, um, uh, when the, uh, when the te- it came time for the teaser, they're like, could we use that? Yeah. So that was Ryan, Ryan, really honestly, Ryan and Damien. No, it was great. I, I liked that one. And, you know, I was just kind of curious with the shoot like that, when you shoot the poster, do you basically send that photo off and the studio kind of runs wild with the retouching or do you ha- still handle the retouching on everything or how does that kind of work usually? They handle everything in that in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, we do, a, depending on what it is, we just did a big thing for Netflix that uh, came out and we, so this is interesting. It, it, it completely varies. So the Netflix thing was in London and the uh, creative director that was with us, uh, Jenny Wilkes, amazing woman, she uh, said, look, can we try to do everything in camera? And I was like, cool, no, never asked for that. Yeah. And we were doing all kinds of cool stuff with prisms and stuff. And we did everything in camera, and we set the look on set. And that's what they went with. 
like there was no change. It was just like, we love what you did. We love how you shot it. That's how we're running it. And they ran it that way. And so there's kind of the, that, that's kind of the um, other end of the spectrum. Most of the time uh, for movie posters, for entertainment stuff in general, um, you're never committing to an environment. It's usually always on gray seamless. Mm. So your lighting is key, but the environment you're never committing to. And then it's like dropped into an environment unless it's really, unless the kind of end game is really like fleshed out. I think what it is, is like the film's not even been edited yet. They want, so they don't have an idea. Well, yeah, they don't have an idea of even what, what is this thing? Like, we need to watch this thing in order to figure out what the poster is. Like, what's the appropriate like setting this and that. So it's a lot safer, I think for them to do, uh, to do it on. I mean, we just shot, um, the poster for the new uh, movie that Tom Hanks is doing, uh, where he plays Mr. Rogers. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. He's he he did like two weeks on it, I think, and then the uh, main character um, did it for uh, worked two months on it. So like, the, he's not he's not sort of the main character. He didn't follow the. That's exciting because um, you you photograph Fred Rogers. You think mm-hmm. that's a big reason reason you got that job, pretty much because you have a famous photo of Fred Rogers. That yeah, you shot they, in his they sweater. knew I had shot it, and they wanted to have me be a part of the EPK. And they did an interview, and I brought the original camera I used and all that stuff. And we had that on set. But I guess the point I was trying to make is there were, there were all these sets yeah. that were were at the, at the, on the stages, right? And there was like an amazing replication of fred's office and i mean i mean, i went in there and i was like oh my god i feel like i'm in it was unbelievable really yeah and oftentimes you know you're on sets and they're amazing but they're not actually replicating an actual location that i was ever in so seeing like for example the stuff for first man like the lamb or seeing like the capsule uh it's you know it's mind-blowing but um uh and of course i would have loved to have shot tom in the office but they didn't want to commit to anything so yeah. we shot him against gray seamless so not nearly as exciting but yeah that's no, interesting and i guess to go back like uh, like how did you kind of get into f- photography initially how did it kind of come into your life uh it came into my life well the first time i sort of like witnessed firsthand like the photographic process outside of my parents you know taking pictures of us as kids was uh was uh, i remember when i was a kid this is kind of funny because i just thought of it but you know, there used to be these things called photo mats where uh, you would like drive up to them. They're little kiosks and they would be in like the parking lot of a Sears or something. Oh, yeah, I remember those things. And you drive up to them and you'd give the film, your film, you'd put it in an envelope and fill it out. And we put it in there and then you'd come back like a few days later and it was ready for you. And I remember being really fascinated by color negatives because they look so odd. Like black and white negatives, you can kind of read. But color negatives, you know, people's lips are like blue. And, you know, it was a weird, it's like, weird tint. thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, yeah, when I was a kid, uh, there was a local... Uh, I was in 4-H, which is... Uh, 4-H is like an agricultural... Oh, yeah. It was uh, run by the Department of Agriculture. It was founded in, like, 1911 or something. Yeah. And it's a, it was like a project... It was a... Uh, it's an educational outreach program, right? So I studied in 4-H entomology and beekeeping and small engines and carpentry and cooking and all kinds of different subjects. But... Um, our photography instructor, uh, Claire Dalrymple was his name. He was a Navy photographer and he had a darkroom at his house. And, um, I went in when I was about nine or eight, probably he, uh, had, I was over there playing. His son was a good friend of mine and we went into the darkroom and watched him print and that smell. Like every time I go in my darkroom, 
Uh, and I smell like glacial acidic acid. You know, it's like, oh my God, I'm in Mr. Dalrymple's dark room. So I saw that for the first time then. Uh, didn't really kind of like revisit it until high school. Uh, one reason was because I was doing a lot of miniature work and uh, building a lot of models and filming them and stuff. And it, it was one of those things where it kind of came photography kind of came in sideways a little bit because I was much more interested in like filming my miniature spaceships and stuff uh, than I was like doing photography. But I realized that um, I needed to learn how to expose film because I would like shoot a roll of Kodachrome eight millimeter film, have it processed, get it. And it was like super underexposed or way overexposed. I'm like, I got to learn how to expose film because I'm waiting a week, Yeah, you know, and I'm spending all this time like against this painted star field and stuff and I'm not getting images. So it kind of came from that. Uh, cause I wanted to be a cinematographer. That was like what I really wanted to be. That was like my dream, you know, like when I was in high school, I subscribed to American cinematography and like, you know, every kind of star log and uh cine effects and like every magazine i could get that was like movie related film related special effects related that was like my world you know yeah that's interesting now it's kind of come full circle like you were showing me you're, you're working on a movie right now so it's kind of come full, full yeah. circle for I you i mean that part has i mean i've done videos and commercials for you know last 25 years um but i so i i do like working in film um a lot actually um the thing about film for me is it's interesting because it's an experiential medium. Um, you know, I at my house, you know, every available wall has got art on it, right? So there's paintings and there's photographs and collages and whatever else, but a lot of photographs. And I live with those images, you know, like the one behind you, for example. I like I know that image is there and I stop and I look at it, right? Film is different because film you have to like commit to sitting down in a kind of darkened area and concentrating and having an experience. And then what we have from that is we have the, the, uh, the kind of stored memory of that film. Mm. So you and I are talking about first man or we're talking about Apollo 11. We're talking about a memory we have of that. We don't have a, uh, we don't have the movie sitting here with us, right? Yeah, it's not tangible. So it's a different, it's a different thing. So for me, like creating like a tactile, tangible object, a photograph that can be, you can live with in your house there's something very special about that. And I think that's always my love, but have you always been a collector? Cause we're sitting here in your yeah. studio and you just have tons of books, tons of photos, this everything. Have you always just been like kind of like a collector of things like growing up? Or? Yeah. I think as soon as I had a place that had room, it kind of expanded, which that's pretty natural. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I have. I mean, I got it from my dad. He was a total pack rat. And okay. he like, you know, his whole thing was like, he'd see something in a trash can when I was a kid. I remember this. And he'd be like, oh, I'll probably use that sometime, you know, and he'd take it home and it would just be, there would just be junk everywhere. But the truth is, you know, we can do entire jobs here without even going to Home Depot or yeah. anywhere. You know, we got stuff. We just do it, you know, so yeah. it works out pretty well that way. What did your dad do for a living growing up? He was a welder. Oh, cool. Was he pretty supportive of you getting into photography? He what was, did he think? Yeah, he was really interesting. My, my, the one thing I would, we, we, we didn't have money, but the one thing that my parents did that I'm very grateful for, or one of the things that I'm grateful for, was that they tried to foster my interests. And I remember books were a big part of that. And, uh, you know, we had a library in town that I, my mom would religiously like take me to after school 
let me go in there. She'd run her errands. I'd sit in the library. I'd find books. I'd come out. You know, you can get them. You get them for. I think the library was like I could. Get, you could check them out for two weeks. I think so. Mm-hmm. Like we'd go back. We also had a bookmobile, which was which I actually just saw that here in Austin. I just saw that we have a book bookmobiles program in Austin. But basically, it's a big like delivery truck that's outfitted inside like a library. And you just go on it, and, and you go in and you check them out. So the bookmobile would park. I lived about a half mile from my bus stop and we would have to walk to the bus stop and wait for the bus when I was a kid and the bookmobile would park there every other week so when we'd get dropped off by the bus you could go right onto the bookmobile and so you know yeah. one of my most salient memories from the bookmobile was like the American Heritage uh, series uh, history series and you know like Revolutionary War Civil War War, war blah 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 they had one on the French Revolution. That's the first time I saw a picture of a guillotine. <laughs> it just totally mortified me. That's <laughs> like, yeah, whenever I think of the bookmobile, I think of that day. <laughs> you know, like, you know, the executioner, like, holding Marie Antoinette's head. You know, it's just like, oh, my God, I'm ruined. Keep reading, kid. Yeah, keep reading, kid. <laughs> uh, no, that's exciting. I guess, like, and then when did you think photography was could be a career for you? Was it something did you end up going studying it? When did you start thinking, like, hey, this is how I'm going to make my living? When did that kind of... Well, the interesting thing about choosing a career path, for example, is you really need to know that there's a career there to be had. And the our like counselor at our, at my high school named Miss Spore, uh, Pat Spore, she was as sweet as can be, but she had no idea like what was out there. I knew more about the film industry than probably anybody at my school because I subscribed to all those magazines, you know, and I'm like, this is what I want to do. I want to be a special effects guy, you know, no idea how to like facilitate that. So, you know, my parents literally like my dad, like I started calling ILM obsessively, you know, and, uh, and finally they, uh, they, um, let me come come there and look at all the stuff from Battlestar Galactica, and then I ended up working on it yeah. as a seventeen year old, which is like unbelievable. But like my dad took me down there, and I remember the one thing he did that was amazing was that he he went with me, but he let it be my experience. Like he didn't he stood back, he let the conversation be between me and the people there. And you know ILM Industrial Light and Magic, they do all the effects for Star Wars. Yeah, I read about everything. it in your book. Yeah, so ILM. So um, they were in Van Nuys at the time. They're up in the Bay Area now at the Presidio. But um, yeah, it was like an incredible, incredible experience. So um, I think the photography thing, though, once again, like I started it and I got a little off track, but the idea that if you don't know that there's a career out there, it will only ever be like a pastime or Mm -hmm. a hobby, right? So uh, I think my friend Tom who was also into photography, he's like, man, I want to be a photojournalist. And I was like, oh, that sounds cool. You know, what is that? And it was like the guy that takes the pictures in National Geographic, the guys that take the pictures in life. And I was like, man, I look at National Geographic all the time. I want to be the guy seeing it firsthand, not the guy looking at the magazine. I want to be the guy that's there, you know? And so that was so appealing, you know, and and uh, I think that was kind of the driving force. Like, I want to be the guy that experiences it and brings it back to share it with people that aren't in the position to experience it, you know? Yeah. So that was about 20, 2019, where I was like, I'm on. Like, it's on, you know? That's when I really, like, focused. Mm-hmm. And was it, did you end up going to school or you just kind of all self-taught all along? Or So I 
took a photo 1A class at Moore Park College, which was a community college. I took a summer photo 1A class. And the instructor there was named John Gray. He's still a close friend of mine. He's definitely my probably most profound influence and mentor. He, uh, he um, taught Photo 1A because and he, he taught a bunch of different classes, but he taught Photo 1A his entire career. He retired a couple of years ago because he said that he f- loved seeing people fall in love with photography. And so Photo 1A for him was the one he loved, you know, because he loved photography so much. Um, so I took classes from him and, uh, and really learned a lot from him. Uh, I got a job. Um, uh, I was framing houses, doing carpentry work while I was going to school at nights. And then I saved a ton of money. And then I um, applied to Ludwig Maximilian University in Munich. And I went there for almost two years, and I came back and started working in newspapers as first as a lab tech, yep. and then as a photographer. So that was around 85, 86, and then went to New York in uh, 88. Wow, how are those like newspaper years? You feel like you learned a lot this kind of, because I've never worked in a newspaper, but I imagine back then it's probably like pretty fast paced, you're shooting mm-hmm. all the time. What do you mm-hmm. kind of take away from that experience? Yeah, that's a really good question, um, and you're very accurate. It's uh, it's really quick turnaround. It's exciting. It was definitely like the most exciting, fun job I ever had. You know, I was like early 20s, single. I had a 62 Volkswagen Bug. I had like my photojournalist nerdy vest, <laughs> two cameras, a scanner, you know, police scanner. And uh, I just felt incredibly like free, you know, and I couldn't believe, honestly, I couldn't believe I was getting paid to like drive around and take pictures. It was amazing. And, and it was incredible. And it was a great learning experience. You know, I mean, it was like, you know, the idea of like, you know, I'd come in, depending on what shift I was on, I'd come in and I'd go right to my assignment basket in the Florida department, pull my assignment slips out, read them, figure out like my day, sit down with the map, with the Thomas Guide map plot my sort of like okay mark my mark my uh, the pages where I had to be and uh, you know do my thing and yeah it was it was incredible come back run your film do contact sheets you know make your prints I always made my own prints Um, just you know yeah it was it was kind of incredibly magical and wonderful and and I really feel fortunate that I got in right at kind of the last uh, of the photochemical years you know and I don't lament I, I would I would lament having missed that. I'm really happy I went through that and I like learned how to use those tools really well and spent thousands and thousands and thousands of hours in the darkroom. All of those things are important to me, um, but you know, digital is totally unbelievable, and uh, you know I don't miss film at all. <laughs> uh, and like, did you kind of because like looking at your work, you're really well known for like all the amazing stuff you've done in editorial. Obviously, you do more than that. Um, but did you kind of have a goal early on, like, cause you started off as a photojournalist, but were, were did you have your sights set on being a magazine photographer or how did that kind of come into play for you? So the thing about that was, yeah, um, magazines, I think what it was is there are several things. One was Eugene Smith was a big influence on me and I went to see an exhibition of his at, uh, the temporary contemporary museum of art in LA and uh, it was this massive exhibition and it was all vintage prints and Smith had already passed. It was a posthumous exhibition. And I remember John, my instructor at Moore Park said, you got to go see the Smith show. I actually ended up going with him to see it. And, um, cause he said, you know, in order to make a good print, you need to know what a good print looks like. And Smith was an incredible printer. So we went down to that show 
And what I realized is, you know, Smith was the consummate photojournalist, but he was a magazine photojournalist. So there was a lot of portraits. There was a lot of, you know, so it seemed like this incredible, perfect blend, you know. And um, I started going to magazine stands and looking at magazines and thinking, you know, my work could live here. My work could live here. My work could live here. Uh, they're using the kind of work that, you know, I feel like they'd respond to my work. And I just started kind of surgically targeting you know, magazines. What what really happened though? I was at the newspaper, and I started lighting things uh, like multiple lighting setups. You know, I was shooting four by five and medium format newspaper jobs, as well as thirty five. You know, obviously more of the news stuff was thirty five. But if I got a portrait to do a local artist or whatever, I would take lights and light it and stuff. So I was kind of like trying to hone my skills in that department. But um, I got a job in New York from Chris Callis who is really, really amazingly talented, very technically, very technically talented photographer. And he was doing, at the, he was at the height of his career um, when I went to work for him. And I'd never even been on like a big commercial job before. I was like straight from the newspaper, newspaper to working for him. <laughs> I remember the first day I worked for him, it was like an American Express campaign. And it was like Producers all these that, lights. Yeah. Oh my God, so many people. And it was just like, I felt like a total like poser, right? <laughs> imposter. But I remember he would have me, I would, we were shooting Kodachrome and he would do this motion blur stuff where he'd do mixed lighting. And so we would bracket and I would have, the i would stand there next to him and hold the camera lens and bracket while he was shooting it was just amazing it was amazing it was just like i i don't even know what's going on here but um that kind of segued me into the magazine thing i worked for chris for a year in new york so that kind of got me to new york did you feel like that do you, do you feel like that's like a necessity like was moving to new york do you feel like you needed to do that to get in the magazine world do you still think that people need to do that these days what do you take away from i i didn't do it for anything other than uh the learning experience i didn't think that chris was gonna like be my entree into anything even though he was doing that work you know it was like you know the way this is the way i look at it and i just actually told my son this the other day as far as like getting breaks i said i'd say you know you get it you get a break from a magazine once Mm -hmm. if you don't deliver you don't work for him again period because you know i think we look at these magazines at these entities and we don't break them down into their human components you know so you get a call from you know karen frank for example you interviewed her Mm -hmm. wonderful woman uh you get a call from her and she gives you an assignment and maybe she hands it over to one of her sort of photo directors right photo editors and they sort of work through it with you and then you turn it in not you particularly but whoever and you know you get that image you turn the image in if the image falls short right it reflects poorly on the entire photo staff because they have to go to the editorial staff and then the editor sees it and the managing editor sees it and suddenly it's like yeah better not hire that guy again because like i didn't like the feeling of i think if you've met, even yeah. if you did like four jobs for them and you messed up the fifth time you're yeah. probably not going to go a call again yeah you know so you really got to be mindful that of that human element right it's like i don't want to be the guy who's like like not carrying my weight. Now, having said that, another thing that's very important, in my opinion, with regards to doing assignment photography is to have a kind of like safe place, have a go-to that no matter what, no matter if the walls of the building fall down, you can still go to a place. I would always have that contingency in my mind. Um, And that's usually like a tighter shot because 
if you're trying to get something to work and it's just not working and not working, not working, you know, excuses don't like sell magazines, you know? So it's a good, it's a, it's a good point you made. You, you know, no one likes bad photo days. You know, I mean, I use a baseball analogy, you know, you want to get on base at least, right. You want to have a, you you really, what you want is honestly what you want is a home run, but those are elusive and difficult. Yeah. Uh, You don't get those. Those aren't just like handed out. Yeah, I was going to ask you, I've asked a couple of photographers this, like even at this point in your career, um, do you walk away from every shoot completely satisfied or do you, obviously you get something that, like you say, you got your go-to things, but do you walk away from every shoot you do completely satisfied every time you think, or is there ever a feeling of like, I, I should have tried this, or I should have tried that? Or I definitely like second guess my decisions sometimes, but I do know that usually I'm not on a time crunch. And if I am, it's very well thought through. And um, usually I don't stop until I feel like we're good. Mm -hmm. So I would say um, I don't, I would say this, I haven't had that bad shoot feeling in a a long time. Yeah. Like of of just like, man, it just didn't work. Um, Having said that, you know, I mean, like I said, if you, if you as a photographer can, can make a couple images in your career, that add to or enrich the long history of the medium you're doing pretty damn well Mm. you know and and you know let's let's face it you know none of us are going to make you know behind the gar at san lazar 1932 cartier brisson image right we're never going to make that image we have to make peace with that there are there are anomalies in our in our profession that are so masterful that it's probably just not going to happen. But what we can do is we can do the best we can and try to make a contribution. And I think if we're if we're thinking that way, there's a really good chance we probably will. You know, it's like knowing your history, knowing I was writing this young I'm working with this young saxophonist Ben Flocks and we did a shoot and we're doing his album design. We do design work here too, okay. design. And uh and I told him the other day i said i always want to make sure i know whose shoulders i'm standing on because i know that there's a rich history in jazz there's a rich history in photography there's a rich history in sport. you need to know that stuff you know you need to know where you come from mm-hmm. the, the first question i ask the audience when i speak is when was the first photo made i i i have the nieps image up behind me as like my placeholder for the whole intro okay. and like while people are waiting for me to go out to the podium, it's just up there, right? It's the 1826 image of the courtyard. And, uh, and, uh, so I stand up and I say, you know, anybody know what this is behind me? You know, and so a couple of people are like first photograph, you know, wow. whatever. And then I say, does anybody know when it was made? And if you do, please don't blurt it out. Okay. And like, Oh my God, like no one knows. Like when it, like, I don't know, 1720, like, it's a, or like 1950 like really literally i'm like we you got to know this stuff you got to know the progression man because the progression is the important piece you know mm. but that's like a musician or that's like a painter right they know where they're coming from you and have I, to and i think it's smart because if you look what's come before you you can pull inspiration from that and like find new ideas from the past and it kind of informs the, your work you're doing now you feel like that sometimes yeah. 100%. Yeah. Absolutely 100%. And and for nothing else just to like just to sort of you know just purely for the inspiration purely for the like the discovery like you know you look at Callahan's work from the 50s and you know you look at that and like or Metzger's work like from the 60s and 70s and I look at it and I just 
it's like, are you guys aliens? Like where on earth, how did you guys find this? You know? And, and, and I'm so happy that they did, you know, because I can, I, it's almost like, um, it's almost like, uh, you know, someone, it's almost like Edison trying like, you know, a thousand different materials and, and finally landing on like tungsten. Yeah. Right. It's like, thanks. Got it. Now I can make a light bulb and I don't have to do a thousand. You know, YouTube has been a great ad uh, assistance in that. Right. It's mm -hmm. assisted us quite a bit in that. Right. We can we can say, uh, oh, how do I do this? And it comes up and you're like, done. There's, I don't have to try it 50 ways. There's videos of people like how to do the Dan Winters look. There's Is that right? 100 percent on YouTube, man. Wow. I was gonna, I was going to ask you that. Wow. Um, I did not know that. Like you talked about in your book about style and things, but. Uh, what what do you say to like? Do you feel like did it take you a while to find your voice as a photographer? Is like a style and aesthetic? Is that something you think about a lot? Because like looking at your work, obviously when I look at your editorial stuff, uh, looks like you shoot a lot of strobes. I know you use the ring flash. It seems quite a bit. But then your personal work is like a lot, really nice portraits of your father, like black and white Hasselblad. Um, did it take you a while to? find your voice is something you think about a lot this the aesthetic and well the black and white Hasselblad is the is like my voice truly because mm -hmm. it's you know that's all that stuff that's there's been a continuous 35 year stream of that stuff right mm -hmm. like i've still shoot that way and just available light black and white right so the idea of that is to me like i tell you know i tell young photographers like don't use a 50 just use a 50 because a 50 is the closest approximation to the way you see. If you're, if you really want to see, right. And learn how to see, you use a 50 and like with a 35 format or a medium format, like use a normal focal length lens, like an 80, I use a hundred on my Hasselblad cause it's closer to me. It's closer to a 50 than an 80. Mm -hmm. 80 is a little wide. Um, because really it's all on you then it's like, the hardest thing is to like really see something, right? You build sets, you have wardrobe, you're using strobes, you're modifying everything, you're lighting and all that stuff, which is wonderful. And it's a skill. And I mean, it's a learned skill and it takes a long time to learn it, to do it really well, I think. Um, but, um, you know, you're manipulating things. Whereas when you're just shooting like really simple black and white, kind of pure out and about, I call it like public photography, that's really difficult to do and make something that's really compelling. <laughs> But as far as style goes and sensibility, you know, I mean, I, I like to use that term sensibility because I don't feel like you could, like, you know, you just said there's a thing of my style. Like, what is my style? Like, what do they say my style is? And when I think of it, like, when I think your editorial stuff, like I said, I think of, like, strobe, ring flash. Um, you love, like, textured backgrounds, the Dan Winters green. Uh, oh, so you're talking about, like, the green portrait look. Yeah. Because, I mean, look at aerospace. Look at yeah, these. Yeah. Look at, like that someone said someone said not too long ago they're like dude you should make an app you could like sell your app and i'm like what app for what like what you go to nasa with my app and what a shuttle appears or something i don't understand what you mean by that yeah so yeah i know i know what you're talking about you're talking about like that classic kind of like rembrandt portrait like look would be like what a lot of people would probably like refer to as like a, a style but if you looked on you know, there's close to a thousand pictures on my website, right? Yeah, and no, one hundred percent. Like in yeah. your, everything, like your B stuff, and yeah, it's just different. It's just in segments, and like, right. I'm always just curious, like when you're with the editorial stuff. Seems a lot of times you use a lot of strobes. Like I said, the ring flash and mm -hmm. stuff. 
is it you feel like with editorial and when you work in commercially it's like you need to bring in like another it's like it needs to be like on another level high key or is what is the it depends you know i've i've really like i kind of stopped several years ago really using the ring light because it's the ring light in and of itself is incredibly ugly um i think when you augment it with and use it as as a part of your contrast ratio it's a it's a it's a great tool and i use it for certain things but um i feel like uh it, you're not very flexible when you're shooting if you're using it you know you can't like move around you got to keep like you know adjusting it over and over and over and it's a good tool sometimes i use it for the thing i use it for the most now is to get a little tiny specular highlight in the eye mm. um you know and i think it works well for that but um yeah there was a time i mean i think the lighting I, if I look at my work and I look back at my work and I look like, say, 25 years ago, let's say, for example, like I've known Karen longer than my son's been alive. I've known Karen 30, over 30 years, yeah. for example. So what I was shooting for her back then, um, I remember for the first job I got, this is a funny story, actually. The first job I got from, this was for GQ, was to shoot John Thompson, who at the time was the basketball oh, coach Georgetown. at Georgetown. Yeah. So I went down there to shoot it and I... Went by myself, no assistant. I had two bags, Hasselblad, a couple little Norman lights, you know, really simple, really light. And I got to Georgetown and I closed the door of the car and I went and found my contact person who showed me like where I could. I was, I told him I wanted to shoot in a, in a gym, mm-hmm. uh, in a, on a court. They said, okay, no problem. So I went and met him. I went, I was early, like three hours. You know, I usually just give myself a lot of time uh, leading up to, because the more prepared you are, you know, the smoother it's going to go. And so I, uh, I remember saying like, okay, this is going to work great. Let me go get my stuff. So I go back to the car and I'd lock the car and I'd lock the keys in the car. So I had no, no way to get in the car. So I threw a brick through the window and broke the window out to get to my stuff so that was a funny and i told her that i was like okay so i had to blah blah, blah. thank god i took the insurance by any way any way possible dan's getting the fucking job done. i'm getting the job done no question yeah so but um you know that picture which i you know i mean obviously i never got rid of i don't think i've i've probably thrown a couple negs away in my life but not many mm-hmm. i keep everything mm-hmm. um we keep every digital file even the crap we don't delete anything in your book i found really interesting you kept every note because back in the day you would drop off your portfolio at magazines and if you said it if if the photo editor liked your work a lot of times they'd leave you a note and you kept every note yeah i have a giant pile i have a giant pile of notes <laughs> in fact they're in an they're in an envelope i saw two days ago that says many 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 thank yous <laughs> and that was that was the thing i mean it was a very different thing look when i would when i would shoot a job i would send prints which i still do i still send prints and not always but we sent a batch of prints out yesterday for a thing i did for uh for boston medical center i think yeah and um then i would get like the magazine they would send me a copy right and there would be a note right yeah with the thing and it was this very beautiful like exchange you know yeah i haven't gotten a note in so long yeah there's a couple magazines that still send me a copy but not so much anymore yeah Uh, i get copies yeah but every once in a while, I'll get a note. Like, someone will put it in there. It always feels generic. Mm. Thanks. Yeah. You know, like, it doesn't even feel... That That personal thing is, like, really gone. Like, for example, um, my phone at my studio used to, like, ring off the hook to the point where the guy, Dave Yeager, who works for me, who's worked for me for 26 years, he still works for me, mm-hmm. my studio manager. Yeah. Um, he has an office here in town. Yeah. 
he uh, was just on the phone all the time. Dan Winter's office, can you hold? You know, like crazy. All email. Yeah. All email. The phone never rings. It's like silent at at there. I mean, I talked to him about it. He's like, it's silent. I kind of hate that because I have that with some clients I work with, like some magazines, and I want to talk to them on the phone. And sometimes I'll try, and they just are busy, and it's all through email. And Mm -hmm. I think a lot of times having 10 emails, you could just take one five-minute phone call, and then it's just... I think it would just go way yeah. better. You're, you're right about it. You're absolutely right. We Usually what I'll do is everything will get set up. And for example, okay, good example. I have a shoot on Wednesday of next week for men's health. And, and everything's been dialed in. It's all been set up. It's all been scheduled. And then I have my call this afternoon with the... Uh, photo director got it and then there's a quick call just to touch base but that usually happens like right at the end mm-hmm. and that's that's uh, yeah, smart and you know was it like a gradual thing like uh, for you like becoming a full-time photographer because you know i think that's a lot of things young photographers struggle with how did, were you able to make this your full-time job was it like were you working you're i know you're doing the assisting with chris and then you kind of break off on your own was it this straight to shooting or how do you kind of make that transition to where you could actually make a living doing this well so my first job like professional photography job was as a lab tech yeah and which is great because i was around photography i would tell photographers this doesn't apply anymore as much because this kind of stuff's gone away but i used to tell students like when you graduate don't drift away from the profession Mm -hmm. so if you're going to school and studying photography get a job at a lab get a job assisting a production job a pa job anything you can you need to be in the profession because the more you're in the profession the more you understand the way it works all those things right uh labs are obsolete almost now right so like the idea of getting a job at a lab has kind of gone out the window um but you know being in production and and if you're in la or new york it's much easier to do that obviously in la i mean there are so many assistant crews there that even when kids say, you know, I want to be an assistant, I'll say, okay, here, call this guy. He'll maybe work you in. But I want to warn you that you got to perform. And I'll tell students, you know, I'll tell kids, if you want to assist, you know, people will say like, yeah, I'd like to show you my portfolio. I'm like, why would I, why would I want to see your portfolio? I want to know that you can operate a pro photo pack. Yeah. That's all I care about yeah. on set. Like it's yeah. not about, you know, so, you know, most rental houses will let, young assistants take a pack plug it in with a head and play with it and figure out how it works and you know it's the guys i work with it's like take it down a third it's like done yep. like boom right now you know and it's like you know this stuff really well start with basics and yeah work and your work your way up and really what you want to do the goal is you want to make yourself valuable on set so that someone says wow i need that person you know it's like who's the most important person on a movie set the AC because he's focusing mm. and it's one of the hardest things to do. Yeah. So it's like, that's the guy you want to make sure your AC is like the man. Yeah. Right. I mean, I know Rick Linklater is a friend of mine. He's a director here. He, he, uh, does these, uh, he's done these, uh, before sunset and after sunset, he's done a whole series of films with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delphi. And, uh, they're all Steadicam films. The whole thing They're The whole thing is like walk and talk. Not the entire was Boyhood thing. was Boyhood. Uh, boyhood was yeah. He right. just shot that here. Yeah, Eller, yeah, Eller's from right here up in Wimberley. The kid that played him. Amazing. Um, he uh, so there's a Steadicam operator, this guy from Greece, and it's like the only Steadicam guy like Rick will work with. He's just the guy. and he literally has moved production 
around this guy like oh you're not available till march 3rd okay we'll wait till you know what i'm saying because it's like that is a huge piece you know yeah. i mean that's a walk and talk movie yeah you got to have that but in terms of like making it a career for me it was like lab tech photojournalist so i'm shooting every day so i was like really sharp like really sharp yeah. and the entire time i worked for chris i was shooting all the time too mm -hmm. um for myself on the street and um and uh, the transition was, I told Chris I'd work for him for a year, and I gave him exactly a year, almost to the day. And three months before my year was up, I said, okay, I got to replace myself. I'm just telling you right now, like my year's up in three months or two months or whatever. Yeah. He's like, oh, you're really going to do it, huh? And I'm like, yeah, I want to shoot. You know, I I'm, I'm want to be back shooting, you know? And so what happened was I took a month off. I printed a portfolio. I had a box made. I still have the box here. It's completely trashed. But I had a custom box made, had full of prints, and um, I was ready. And I had been looking at the magazine stands, and I'd picked magazines I wanted to work for. And I literally, like, the Metropolis magazine was the first one I went to. And I rode my bike over there, and I dropped off my portfolio. And there was this Cuban restaurant. It's when I lived in Tribeca. Mm -hmm. And there was this Cuban restaurant on Canal that I used to love to go to, get a big plate of beans and rice, and, like, so good. Anyway, so I went there, and I had lunch. And then I rode my bike back to my place. I shared a loft with a friend of mine. When Tri Tribeca was, like, dirt cheap. Yeah. And there was a light flashing on my machine, and I had got two assignments from Metropolis. Damn. And I was like... I made it. <laughs> no, no. I was like, wow, this is so easy, you know? And, uh, I mean, the story goes, like, you know, I've kind of been working ever since. You know? And, you know, one thing I was kind of curious, like, people's mindset. Like, what do you remember about your mindset as a young photographer back then? Like, did you always envision yourself being a successful photographer? Did you ever have times of doubting yourself, or... Did, did you always just have that confidence in yourself like you were going to succeed what do you remember about your mindset early on i remember being probably like painfully naive and incredibly confident mm. maybe like unrealistically confident and um i do remember one kind of thing and and i've talked about this before and that is the idea of like you know you know, the idea of like making it, quote unquote, right? So that's like a thing that I think we fabricate, like, because what we do when we make it is we, we kind of create a goal. And then when we achieve that goal, then the perception is that we've made it. But the reality is all we've done is like achieved a goal. Yep. There's That's not making it. So I had this idea in my head like, oh, if I get a Rolling Stone cover, I will have made it. Yep. And, you know, I got my first Rolling Stone cover and I shot it. And then the next day it was like, okay, what am I doing I today? An I need another job. There was no, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so like I've completely erased that part. Like for me, it's just like what's going on tomorrow? What's going on the next day? And just trying as hard as I can. I think the one thing that helped me always was I had an incredible work ethic. I mean, I got that from my dad for sure. Uh, and my mom, they both were super hard workers. And the idea that every single time I try as hard as I can to do something to make a compelling image yeah. and to satisfy the client, but satisfy the client while being true to myself, because I feel like that's the most authentic way to work is like creating something that is like you're you're being true to yourself right not second guessing yourself not second guessing not sort of like you know i hear this so much i see a portfolio and it's like uh you know there's some compelling cool pictures in it and then there'll be like a plate of food 
And I'm like, in color, you know, and I go like, what's this? And they're like, oh, yeah, I just want to show people that I can shoot like color still life. And I'm like, ditch that, man, because that is not a good image. You want to only show what you want to shoot. You don't want to show something you don't want to do. So like the portfolio. Now, that's not to say, like we talked about earlier, like my body of work is really diverse. But if I were going to show my body of work in a portfolio, I would definitely do it in sections. I would, and I would very consciously like delineate Chapters. the sections exactly. So I could say, here's this section, here's this section. That's not going to confuse someone. They're going to be like, oh, wow, this guy's really okay. And the response you want is, this guy's really diverse versus this guy's all over the place. Yeah. So that's the response you want to. So, how do you control that? How do you create that response? You create that response by showing complete thoughts, multiple yeah. complete thoughts. I think that's like the tough thing because like when you go from you start off in photography, it's your love of photography and taking pictures. But then at some point you're trying to make make money. So I think I think I've made the mistake early on is you're trying to make money. So you start trying to put these photos You're like maybe this person will hire me for this. But then the thing I was going to ask you is like has money ever kind of clouded your creativity or vision? Have you always just been able to like be like this is who I am? And I'm not going to try to like cater to these clients and hope they're going to hire me. Or is it you've always just kind of had that vision. You're just going to put it out there and hope they respond to it. Well, I think if I get hired, right? So they want me to do my thing. That's how I've always felt. So if you're hiring me, I'm going to do my thing. I have been in situations before where I have been doing my thing. And then sort of they've asked me to like do something else, probably something I wouldn't have done normally. And so in that case, what I do is I kind of, so I'm really good at like kind of being egoless on shoots. So I can go like, okay, I can switch gears. And what I can say is I have a skill set that will allow me to make a living. And if they want me to do it this way, I'm going to put on my craftsman hat and take off my like artiste hat. And I'm going to sat because I know that these people, a, once again, I have to honor this. They're answering to other people, right? They've been working on this for a long time and I'm a very small piece in a very big project, right? I mean, you know, the amount of meetings and pitches and client meetings and this and that and this and that and then photographer selection and then I do my little piece here and then they keep going with like production, production, layout, design, release, printing, blah, blah, blah. So I understand that like I'm a small part of a big process and if they really feel like they need it this way or that way, now I'm not saying that I would be okay with them saying like, here, make a really crappy image. I'm still going to to do the best I can but if I'm starting with like a really cool set and thinking like this is the way to go and what it turns into is like can you just shoot it against white I'm like I can shoot all day long against white you yeah. know and I know how to do it right you know I know how to get the person silhouetted and put the light on it and I'll just be a craftsman today you yeah. know I'm okay with that yeah because I bet I would imagine a lot of times these art directors when you're in when we're talking about like commercial side of things a lot of these art directors are probably fans of like your personal work your B stuff and that's why they want to work with you because they they respect what you do but then there's the corporate bureaucracy of like mm-hmm. the people that are hiring you at like whatever Bank of America, wh- whatever it may be. Universal, whatever, yeah. That guy yeah. doesn't know anything about photography, yeah. but he's still in charge of like all this marketing stuff. and that. But So they just want you to execute that. So it's like your personal work kind of gets you in the door, and then they ask you to execute this, whatever their vision might, might be. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty spot on. Yeah. I think, I think the, probably the most kind of obvious example of that f- that comes to mind would be 
movie poster stuff where usually what happens with movie posters for me is like they want me to set up like a really classic portrait setup like something i would want to do like can you bring a background and do this and do that so we have that and then we shoot portraits right of each of the cast members which is great for me because mm-hmm. then i get like awesome portraits of actors that i love and then what we do is shoot the rest on gray which i'm happy to shoot on gray you know i i can do that i can light make it beautiful and it's not that it's not beautiful it's just that it's like a gray shot you know and i normally probably wouldn't kind of come up with that as my option but that is that speaks to what we talked about earlier which is the idea that like hey man we don't even know what we're doing with this stuff yet. And when you're doing movie posters, you're doing it during production. You're not getting the people back. Yeah. It's always during production. Yeah. Usually what they try to do is they try to do it on the last day of production. So for example, first man was Ryan's last day. Yeah. So the last thing Ryan did on that film was my photo shoot. Okay. Yeah, no, it's interesting stuff. It's always kind of interesting how that all comes together. And, you know, I was kind of curious, like, was is it always your goal to shoot celebrities or that's just something that kind of happened organically? Like, Totally organically. It happened. Uh, it's, you know, I, I guess if, if I could think of any, like, you know, and I want to use the word break very sparingly, but if I could think of, you know, an example of like the photo gods shining on me. Um, it would be when Kathy Ryan at the New York times magazine, uh, assigned me to shoot Denzel Washington because prior to that, I had shot a couple actors that were, you know, really solid actors. But at that time, Denzel was, that was kind of like a big, um, uh, it was a big time for him. It was for X. Okay. And it was one of those, it was one of those times, time and place, you know, and she assigned me that. And I, re- I remember, uh, you know, they, there's a saying with automotive racing, uh, race on Sunday, buy on Monday. So the idea is like, you know, Chevrolet, Ford. It was when the big three were really competing with one another. And like, you know, f- the the Plymouth-powered car would win the Talladega 500 and, like, Plymouth muscle car sales would go through the roof on Monday. That's kind of a joke. But, you know, the thing with the the New York Times thing was it came out on Sunday and the phone rang off the hook on Monday. And it was like that. But it was a seized opportunity, right? So it was an opportunity that came to me, and I really, like, allowed it to manifest. I worked hard to make sure it was something memorable. But I never, no, I never really did. I I didn't really, I was really into just, like, street photography photography and and it was really into scientists yeah. that's what i liked shooting you know i'd been shooting scientists i'd shot some musicians i shot like you know a couple of sports people always portraits you know business stuff you know which i've never really been that into um and then that happened with uh, denzel and um you know that kind of changed things for me and 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 i do i enjoy actors i enjoy working with artists yeah. so i like painters actors writers whatever i like them because they're interested and knowledgeable about the creative process and they have a respect for it right they have respect like politicians no respect whatsoever for the creative process it's like you got three minutes buddy yeah you know and it's a fake smile right it's like they're not interested in talking to you about like you know rothko and Liechtenstein and like you know Winogrand versus freelander <laughs> like none of that stuff you know at all right yeah i mean there are cool i mean obama's a cool politician i've worked with him a couple times and he he was actually really cool, but um, for the most part, it's like, what do you need, kind of thing. Do but, you feel like 
is celebrities do you feel like it having celebrities in your book has opened doors to commercial work because do you feel like people react to it they're like wow does it give it like a validity to it or for some reason or what do you think because i think yeah i think you know sadly i think um you know i think there are photo editors that are that are visionaries and they're not swayed by uh sort of like they can see the potential in a portfolio even if there's not a celebrity in there and they can hire someone and say this guy makes amazing portraits insert celebrity here i felt like kathy did that with me you know she did that with with the denzel thing i'm mm-hmm. like i had no a-list guys in my book at all and i was like shocked you know yeah. when i got that assignment yeah. And, uh, but I do think, yeah, I think, well, okay. So to get like, you know, entertainment work, mm-hmm. yeah, it's huge because they know that you can shoot actors and you know how to light and you know how to make people look good and this and that and the other thing. <clears throat> um, and also, sadly, I think what happens is, you know, if we, we talk a little bit earlier about the idea of the cult of celebrity, the idea that, you know, our attention is uh, kind of misguided, you know, I mean, the idea that like, someone like you know the kardashians or something would have as much currency in social media as they do seems ludicrous to me you know it's like famous for being famous kind of thing (coughs) excuse me um but i do think that um when i post a picture on instagram for example i'll give you an instagram I've been I've been reduced to giving uh, Instagram examples. When I post a picture on Instagram, which I actually got uh, Instagram a couple years ago because I was a contract photographer photographer for Wired, and um, and the basically the art the creative director and the editor both said you have to get Instagram. They're like, dude, you got to get Instagram, man. That way you can post the stuff you shoot for us. Like it wasn't like you got to get it, yeah. but you should get Instagram. It was like, okay, I got yeah. it. So for a year, I never even did anything. Travis did everything. I would write a caption and email it to him and say, put this picture up. Yeah. And then I just started doing it myself. Okay. <clears throat> but, um, cause I enjoy it. But, um, but the, uh, if I put up a picture of something some street photograph that I think is like the most beautiful thing and like meticulously, like I just posted one of the most beautiful photos I've taken a while in Kazakhstan. And for me personally, it's like one of the most beautiful photos I've taken in a while. And I put it up there and I was just like, I'm so proud of this image, you know, so difficult. It's so difficult to like focus on a bird while it's in flight, you know, and moving. And I'm like, it's hard as hell to do this. Like, and people don't, you know, you don't necessarily want the merit of the image to be like, it was really hard to make this and therefore you should like it. But it's a beautiful image, I think. And it was difficult to make. If I put that up there, I know right off the bat, it's not going to get like, any kind of anywhere near if i put a picture of like jake gyllenhaal yeah you know? how, how's your engagement dan oh, dude. <laughs> it'll get like seven thousand likes and the bird will get like under a thousand it is weird it's like yeah. almost a sl- it's like a currency like you oh, said totally. it's yeah. weird it's, uh, but yeah i was interested in talking about that um are you cool going a little longer we got a couple more oh yeah all right, cool. all right cool um yeah it's really interesting and you mentioned you shot obama and i thought i thought it was interesting you on your site you photographed him in 2008 and then you sh- shot him in 2016. And I was curious, was that planned mm-hmm. that far in advance? Like, we're going to shoot him 
it just kind of happened. Yeah, when I got the assignment to shoot him in 2016, it was like, okay, we got to replicate the 2008 picture. Um, <clears throat> and that was one of the pictures we're going to do. It was funny, too, because I said, oh, that was a, that time cover I shot of you. Yeah. I'm going to replicate that. And he was like, oh, no. You know, it's really funny because, you know, he knew he aged as well. And we had the picture on set. I think he because, lost a little weight. Yeah, he got thinner. Yeah. Much more gaunt. Yeah, yeah. definitely much more gaunt. But... Um, um, but yeah, that was a that was a great shoot actually. Yeah, what was your experience working with him? Like you were kind of talking about politicians. Most people, they, mm-hmm. it sounds like they don't really give a shit. Um, but what was your experience working with him? Well, I think what we're ha- what we're getting is we're getting we're starting to get finally like rid of like the old white man politician. Mm-hmm. You know the 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 like the like old white man, right? Yeah. And, and I think now we got. We got Booty Gig. Yeah, I can't people. say his name, Booty Gig or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, we're getting people in there that are like people that are like my generation. They grew up listening to like Zeppelin and they grew up with, you know, like we're way, we're not stuck in that paradigm that existed forever, you know, like for many, many, many years, you know, the old white man's club. And so hanging out with him is like, you know, put on some Jay Z. Like, you know, he's like cool. Like, He's like a cool guy that's easy to be with. So it's yeah. not like being with a you know a politician. Yeah, what uh, having photographed a good amount of politicians, like what do you take away from it? Like sometimes like do these people care? Like I can't ever tell. Like no, they, I think politicians live in perpetual fear of not getting reelected. And so what they do is they just do what the constituents want so that they'll get elected again. They're yeah. just, I think they're absolutely the majority i think are absolutely disgusting yeah but there are a lot of you know there are a lot of people that have you know a good ethical you know i was talking to someone the other day actually and i was like okay so do you think like mitch mcconnell like thinks that he's serving the country's best interests because I find it interesting. Oh, he the, definitely does. He does. Yeah, for sure. So I find it. I find it the same. The same. You know, the conversation about like any conviction anyone has, right? The conviction of this or that, like beliefs or faiths or whatever, like your faith or whatever. So, like, you know, he really, they really believe that. So, in a way, like it's hard to fault that. You know, like I disagree with you know all of it, right? Mm-hmm. But if we feel like he's coming to it from a place of integrity, we should at least be able to have a dialogue about it. Right. Rather than a place of passion. Right. And, but I don't think, I think most of these guys are like, I think all of them are afraid, afraid of Trump. I don't, we don't want to get into politics here. I mean, I don't mind. I'll go there. Yeah. (laughs) But I'm saying that, I'm saying that like they're, they seem like they're all like mortified of this guy because their constituency loves him. You know. well, well, you read about like um, I was listening to some interview with some like Harvard like political professor or something, and he explained how the actual system works. And basically, once he's got from the from the jump, like from when they start their campaign to when they get in office, this make this raising funds, raising funds, raising yeah. funds, and that's yeah. that's literally the yeah. job. Yeah, that's the job. Yeah, it's it's crazy. And you yeah. know, have you ever felt? Uh, have you ever not wanted to photograph someone because you didn't believe in what they were about? Because um, I know I had this situation, I've mentioned it before in the podcast earlier this year, where I photographed Sean Spicer, and I, I felt like kind of conflicted about it. Like, on one hand, I'm like, I'm a photographer, maybe that's not my job to put like my politics in it, but have you ever had an experience where you didn't want to take a shoot or turned it down, or how do you kind of approach those? Yeah, I mean, I've gotten pretty good at like articulating and framing what you're 
addressing right now. And that's a really good point. And I don't think anybody's ever actually even brought that up mm-hmm. in a podcast before. Mm-hmm. So thank you for that question. Mm-hmm. The way I look at it is I look at my time as being valuable. And I look at my, and this, I don't want this to come off being like, you know, pompous or yeah. like based in any kind of ego, but I look at my artistic ability to be valuable to myself. And do I want to spend my time and my artistic ability highlighting this individual, right? I know that someone's going to do it if I don't, and I'm okay with that. Uh, And then am I going to get compensated? So if I was assigned to shoot Sean Spicer, I would have said no, Mm -hmm. because I don't want to leave my wife and my son. Now, if you said you're going to pay me $100,000 to shoot Sean Spicer, I would say I'd be happy to do that. Thank you very much. Because using Sean Spicer as a vehicle to the amount of freedom that $100,000 gives me, I can justify. And I don't look at that as whoring. I look at that as like, I have to analyze this for what, how I am benefited. Right. Yeah. Um, Trump, I would absolutely flat out turn down. I wouldn't photograph him. I wouldn't give him, I wouldn't give him any of my time or any of my artistic ability. I would just say, no, it's not, he's not worth that. Um, I didn't photograph Bush twice when he was in office. Time offered me a cover when he was elected. I turned it down. And one other time during his tenure, I was offered uh, a shoot with him and I turned it down. And, um, He's an interesting one because out of office now he's become this like new character where people like love him. Yeah. Whereas well, like ten years ago they, yeah. they fucking hated him. Yeah, it's true. So when he was out of office, I got an offer to shoot him again, mm-hmm. and I didn't want to do it. And my wife, bless her heart, my wife said, "Look, you've been objectifying this guy, like his entire, you know, since he was governor of Texas. You know, like you need to like humanize this guy. So you should go." And see what it's like and just do it. And I was like, all right, fuck it. So I went. So we went to the ranch and we had the best day. Really? So much fun. It was the funniest, weirdest thing that we still joke around here. Um, he, we started shooting and I bet I shot for like maybe five or six minutes and we were tweaking something. And he just looked at me and he goes, he kind of pointed his finger at me and he goes, Dan Winters, you're a great American. <laughs> and I just thought it was hilarious. So anyway, and then we we shot, and then he's like, let's get a group shot, and this and that. And and you are right. Like, we have short memories. I think what's happened now with Bush is that he seemed like this consummate villain. And then we have this psychopath, egomaniac, maniacal, lying, oh, manipulating... Yeah just disgusting everything bad about humanity but you know we need to have him though we need to have he is a reflection of where we are as a society this guy so we're seeing the part of ourselves we don't like it'll change it'll pass we'll be okay i believe we'll be okay it's wild man because i I live in massachusetts which is like primarily democrat sure sure but i was born in minnesota and like a lot of my relatives live there mm-hmm. and i don't really talk to them like i don't really really have much of a relationship with them this because i didn't i don't i never lived there i was born there and my parents moved out but my relatives still live there but they're trump people man and i i try to talk to them about it and it's, it's like i'm like I, like what like i don't i just don't get it yeah and i think i kind of live in a bubble living in boston where everyone they don't for the most part they don't 
they don't back Trump, but then there's this large population. I mean, you live in Texas. Yeah. It's, uh, see what it is for me though, is it's like people have suspended their like moral code to support this guy that is completely amoral. Yeah. And I, the problem with politics in this country is that we view it as like football. It's like us or them. We won, they won. Yeah. This is far beyond politics. This, if, if there was a decent human being that had, was a conscientious human being that was a Republican in office, I would have total respect for yeah. that person. Yeah. I really would have respect for that person because he's a decent person. Yeah. He has the interests of the country in, in his mind. This is not political. This is shit he did with this McC- McCain like, like a couple no, no. weeks ago. Was this is a disgusting, deplorable individual. Yeah. And if you support this disgusting, deplorable individual, either you're reaping the benefits of some, one of his policies, so you're allowing yourself to operate outside your yeah. moral code, yeah. or you're a fucking disgusting, deplorable individual. One of the two. I don't yeah, know. It, I mean, he's allowed. He has given the fucking go-ahead for ugliness to rear its head in our society. Yeah, and I don't, I don't like that. Like, it brings to even. I find myself like, come on Twitter, and I don't really, I don't respond. But like I, I have these like feelings where I want to, but I don't even want to have that emotion. But he like brings it out of people that hate, and it's like I don't want to have mm-hmm. that dialogue with people. But like I'm saying, like even with my relatives, like I, I don't want to hate them because I, I still love them. At the end of the day, my relatives, I may not agree with them, but it's like he almost like brings the hate out of people. Mm-hmm. It's weird, man. Yeah, I've noticed. Uh, actually, it's funny. This is like, I've I've noticed that if I indicate, and you know, there are certain things that I. I would say that there are certain things. I, I, if I, if I were to take the test that they have, I would definitely like be a libertarian. Yeah. That's how I think I would test. Yeah. Um, I tend to be incredibly open-hearted when it comes to like the impoverished. Yeah. Um, because I feel like we can't judge people's circumstances and how they arrive there. And yeah, there are going to be people that take a, uh, take advantage of that, but yeah. that's just human nature. Yeah. I'm not going to like generalize an entire sort of population because, you know, one bad apple or several bad apples. Yeah. Um, I think that this country was built on immigration and I am totally, I think the wall is like preposterous, whatever. I mean, I could go, yeah, it's crazy. I could go like, you know, policy by policy by <laughs> policy. But I think what I'm, what, what it comes down to though, is really like, is really honestly, like I felt like Obama was a decent human being. Yeah. Like I felt like he was a really decent human being. Did he do, was there a policy that was fakakta? Yeah. Did he fuck up? Yeah. Did he uh, lie? Yeah. I mean, he did. It's just, I mean, it's, and it's like not to give him excuses, but it's like the yeah. way the system's built. They're like, there's, you almost can't get around it. Yeah. It's, and, and, and I'm saying when I say lie, I, I, I would use, I, I, I saw a, a list of like presidents all the way back to like, you know, since it's been charted by the Washington Post with regards to like, uh, dishonesty and deceit in presidents, and they ranged it from like you know big fat lie to white lie to uh, you know construe misconstruing truth, blah blah blah, all the way down the line. And so like you know there was you know Obama and Bush and and all of them. There were a couple like of all of them that were like just fucking white liberal lies literally they're alternative facts no but but trump's was so far off the charts that it was like it was funny but you know and and i and i hate for it to be i feel like it's not a political thing it's not a republican thing it's not a democrat thing i mean you know 
you know, I mean, it's just, it's about like, where do we stand with regards to like morals? And he's an amoral individual, period. And there are a lot of moral people that are supporting him and it confuses me. I think from talking to my cousins who are like, they're racist. And they, the thing about races is in my mind is that they live in a bubble and they don't talk to other people. So they think anything that's different from them is like an attack on them. Oh, sure. They're it's afraid. A, it's, it's fear. Where it's like, if you actually, yeah. it's like, people have the same problems in life, pretty much. Everyone struggles. Making enough money to live. Yeah. Finding someone that's going to love you. Having, like, having a family. And that's, and that's everybody's problem around the world, no matter where you're at. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah. You're absolutely right about that. I had that realization later in life, I think, but that's, I'm really, that's really awesome that you have that, you have that, um, that realization and the idea that, no matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter if you're a part of the royal family or if you're part of a tiny little village in India, we all struggle. We all struggle. And life is a struggle. And it's like, you know, at the end of the day, people are just trying to get through their day, you know. Um, but I think, you know, we have to sort of like keep in mind that we are also a part of a much bigger thing, all, each of us. Yeah. And, and, um, and that bigger thing is like the bigger expression of our consciousness as a society. So right now we're like the laughing stock of the planet, not the entire planet, because mm-hmm. there are certain factions that love us. Yeah, still that love Trump. You know, mm-hmm. mostly fascist dictatorships. But um, anyway. Yeah, and then I guess being a photographer, you've photographed so many different types of people. Um, I guess we kind of already talked about. What do you think you've learned most about maybe yourself or just people in general being a photographer and coming in contact with so many people? You think? I think the thing I've learned the most probably is the idea that we're all human. Yeah, yeah, we're all flawed. We're all fallible. We all have bad days. We all have good days. We struggle. Um, we need to connect, and I think that transcends you know photography at a shoot. The key is we need to connect. We're all here. We have a similar, we have the same mission. We all need to like connect. We have, I have a crew here that's helping me to connect and helping me to make these pictures. I need to stay connected to them. You know, it's all about like connecting on a human level, no matter who you're shooting. I mean, I shot the Dalai Lama and he, we didn't speak hardly any English at all together. Yeah. But it was a phenomenal shoot. Yeah. And he ended up like playing with the camera and trying to figure out how the lens worked on the four by five and stuff. So, you know, it doesn't, it does, the funny story I shot, uh, you know who uh, Yoshitomo Nara is? Nara, he's a Japanese painter. Mm-hmm. Murakami and Nara, they're all kind of part of that super flat movement. Yep. I shot Nara in a studio in Tokyo and we went and I knew one thing. I knew that he had done a one year sabbatical in Switzerland and in Vienna. Uh, no, in Austria. It was in Austria. And, uh, or maybe it was in Switzerland, Lucerne. I can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, he, so I was like, he's got to speak German. And I went to film school in Germany and I speak no Japanese and I had a translator, but I was like, I hate talking through translators. Yeah, so I got there and I was like, Kannst du Deutsch? And he was like, yeah, Freilich. You know, so we start, so here I am in Japan shooting a Japanese artist and we're speaking German and that's how we can, that's how we can communicate, you know? So then it was like, I was engaged with the guy the whole time. Now, had I not spoken German, I would have been talking through a translator the entire time, Damn. which never is great, you know. How do you end like how, off of that? Like, how do you kind of deal with tough personalities or even like one shoot you did? Uh, you wrote about it in your book. Uh, you photographed uh, a firefighter. I think was it Brendan McDonough? Uh-huh. Yeah, uh-huh. what's that? McDon- yeah, yeah, uh-huh. which was like 
such a tense tense article uh it was I believe 19 firefighters lost their lives mm-hmm. one guy survived you photographed him um with a shoot like that are you going into that are you nervous going into that how do you deal with such like a touchy subject um with that so on something like that and oftentimes what i do it's a joke with the guys actually because usually like if we're doing something like that where we go to someone's house and we meet up i met up with them at the fire station in that case um and uh we met up and my guys think it's really funny because i just sit and talk for like an hour an hour and a half start shooting don't even break the stuff out i don't even know where we're going to be shooting because we ended up going to the site of a fire that's where that shoot was done um and so we just i'll just talk and he told me the whole story you know and it's cathartic for him i mean the telling of a story is healing yeah. So that was another telling for him. Because how long after that happened did you photograph him? It was relatively soon, yeah. actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris wrote that story, like, trying to think. Of, it was relatively soon after. And then he, and then a f- good friend of mine produced the film that they made about the, about the uh, hot shots. Mm. And yeah. Brendan was a technical advisor on that. Yeah. Donut's what they call him. Donut's name. Yeah. 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 Donut, everybody calls him Donut. <laughs> Yeah, was, yeah, that seemed like pretty intense. Um, and you know, one shoot in particular. Uh, a couple more questions. I'll let you go. Uh, you photographed Tupac. Mm-hmm. What was your experience photographing him like? That guy's just such like a yeah. legendary. I know. <laughs> yeah, he was. Uh, it's it's amazing. He well, it was relatively. You know, his relatively his his legendary status has grown over the years. I've seen it grow. You know, I mean, partially like he was deprived of his life very prematurely. Um, and, uh, you know, secondly, he's an incredible, you know, incredible artist, credible hip hop artist, you know, incredible artist in general. Um, he was an advocate for, you know, uh, black rights. His mom was a black Panther. You know, he had a very kind of interesting background. He was really intelligent, which I think, uh, scares people, scares white people when black people are smart, <laughs> scares those folks in Minnesota anyway. Right. Up. Um, so <laughs> So, uh, yeah, it was great. He showed, he came to my studio alone in, in Hollywood. I had a studio up in the Hollywood Hills on Whitley Heights, right across from the Hollywood bowl. It was an old ballroom of a bill of a house that was built by Hearst for his mistress, Marion Davies. And there was a upstairs and my friend Chloe and Beth lived upstairs and I had the whole downstairs. I had a dark room and it was a huge house. So I had the ballroom. So it was a very atypical studio. It was totally rad. And so we'd shoot in the ballroom and um, I had a couple sets that I'd built and he showed up. And the thing that was interesting to me about that experience with Tupac is it really reinforced the idea that we have to, as artists, like look outside of our own genre in order to bring something back into our genre. Because like he wanted to listen to the counting crows, Oh wow! which was like, you know, at the time that record, you know, August and everything after, I guess it's called, it's a phenomenal record. Um, and it had just sort of dropped and he was like, Hey man, do you got counting crows? And I said, yeah, I have it. So, and that's C- that CD days. CDs. Or, well, wow. We're still in CDs here. We're still in CD mode here. Yeah. <laughs> we'll get you a Spotify account. Yeah, get a Spotify. I do not have a Spotify account. Um, so we're like, I was like, yeah, I have it. Uh, nah. And so he, we put it on and 
we listened to it all the way through while we're shooting and then he said hey can we listen to it again i said yeah we played it again and then he said hey can we listen to it again we played it again so the shoot was roughly two and a half hours then oh damn so he's like a pretty pretty good collaboration with him oh yeah great yeah 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 that's the one thing i always try to make sure i have a lot of time unless it's like someone like obama where you're like you get 10 minutes you know it's like no one gets any time no because and i get it and i respect that i don't want my fucking president sitting around it's got real shit doing photo shoots yeah yeah it's like you know yeah we they gave us so much time i mean i flew to the white house in advance figured out where i wanted to shoot they gave me a whole thing you could shoot here you could shoot here you could shoot here i flew there like a week before two weeks before the shot of him looking out the window that's set up right like it wasn't yeah okay. that's yeah i was just you know i had a mark yeah okay. stand here and look out the window <laughs> that's what i think i wasn't sure if yeah. i mean you're like doing repertoire following him day, around like pete souza or something no. i don't know Pete actually it's funny when i was shooting that picture pete was like over here and he stole <laughs> that picture oh really but at a side angle like in other words i saw it and i'm like that's when i had him looking out the fucking window what the hell, pete man yeah, whatever <laughs> um you know, and one he thing, photobombed it or whatever you would call it. I don't oh, know yeah, what it, I forgot yeah. the name is. Uh, yeah, whatever. Uh, that's interesting. You know, and one thing I was kind of curious about being your successful photographer, um, you get a lot of attention. Um, do you ever get sick of having to like promote yourself and talk about your work sometimes? Because um, I know myself, like photography sometimes can feel like I don't know if this makes sense. It can feel like kind of a selfish career at times because it's all about look at my work, look at my website, look at me, look at me. Um, do you ever get sick of having to like talk about and promote your work? Um, I mean, I feel like this conversation has been pretty back and forth. Yeah. Like, it's not really interesting to me to talk about myself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think earlier I said true, I really true. like doing this. I really like speaking because I like the Q&A. Yeah. Because I like a dialogue. For you know? sure. And... I mean, I feel like if I have anything to offer at 57 years old, having done this for 35 years or more, that I can offer, like, I've had all these experiences, and I can share those, and maybe those are of value. Uh, I like to think that I've made a few successful images in my day, and I'm happy about that. Yeah, I feel like if I viewed myself as anything, it would be more like someone that understands the history and the craft, and understands the medium very well, and I know technical stuff really really well Mm -hmm. and i've spent a lot of time uh learning that stuff so you know talking about yourself sometimes can feel kind of you know i hate to use the word i don't know dirty you know when you (laughs) talk about yourself for a while you feel like i think it's i think it's just like approach we were talking before this interview it's just how i think it's just having self-awareness and like the thing about i really liked about your book road to seeing is you gave useful advice. It wasn't this this book about like how I shot X, Y, and Z celebrity and how awesome I am. It was like you actually gave you gave valuable content that people could actually use. So mm-hmm. I think that's 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 why I kind of really enjoyed how you kind of approached it. Yeah, and I would hope that you know through our conversation you you would be getting that stuff too. You know the idea of like what's a career look like? Well, it looks like when you're nine you do this, and then when you're you know it's a progression, right? And then you look back. You know, I mean, I remember uh, I remember seeing um, Bruce Davidson speak. I drove in my Volkswagen. I drove all the way up to San Francisco from L.A to see Bruce Davidson speak at, um, at, uh, SFU and, um, my bug got stolen. My Volkswagen got stolen. I got it back like six weeks later stripped, but I went back up and got it. Um, and, um, I remember seeing him speak and thinking, Oh my God, why am I even trying to do this? Like, (laughs) Oh my God. But you know, he was, 
he had been at it forever. You yeah. know, he was had been at it forever. And and I had like four binders of negatives at the time. And yeah. I'm like, oh my God, I'm like a baby. But so you could either view that as in a defeatist way, right? Or you could view that in an inspirational way and say, like, look what I can, look what, look what exists. How can I add to that? You know. Yeah. So, but yeah, I mean, you know, no one self promotion and stuff like that. I mean, basically, if you looked at self promotion just as I want to try to make people aware of my work <laughs> yeah. rather than aware of me, because yeah. ultimately they're hiring you to do your work. You know. Yeah, so. that's why I think, man, this coming to the studio is just inspiring. Like, it's this you love photography so much like you this you can comes through like the history and everything the old cameras the old photos and you can tell it's this it's it's a lifestyle pretty much it's it's every day all day every day all day yeah. i respect it man yeah. and uh, i guess my last question um what advice would you give to younger photographers out there that uh want to be doing this for a living what do you think they should be doing these days in an age where the digital age where everyone has a camera and everyone's a photographer these days, how do you set yourself apart and uh, push through, I guess you think? Yeah, it's funny. You know, I've had this, I've had this thought on my mind for a while about, you know, what distinguishing factor you could sort of apply to your work to stand out in today's like oversaturated market. And what I think is, this is what I've come up with. What I've come up with is that, with a phone or with a DSLR that has auto settings on it and you get immediate feedback, what you get is you get a focused, uh, an image that's sharp, right? An image that's in focus and you get an image that's properly exposed. So after that, it's image making. Mm -hmm. So either you can make images or you can't. So the, when people used to go to photography school back in the day, let's say the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, what they were stuttering, studying is the technical aspects because you had to be a technician. So when I was coming up, you had to know chemistry, sensitivity, uh, uh, sensitometry. You had to understand optics. You had to understand how the thing worked, right? Because you were using those tools and they were com complicated, right? You don't, all that's gone. All of that's gone. So that... So I joke about, like, I have this dark skill in the darkroom. I have a skill with a 4x5 camera that I had, have had for many, many years, skill in the darkroom. And my darkroom skills, like the fact that I've spent thousands and thousands of hours printing and I can make beautiful prints, is absolutely worthless now. Worthless. I mean, my gallery in L.A., Fahey Klein Gallery, when I did the last show there, uh, which was of the... Um, um, Grey Ghost, which is a street photography book I did, New York street photography. Uh, I asked David if I should make silver prints for it. And he's like, nah, none of the collectors care. <laughs> they just want images, right? So I was like, wow, that's crazy, man. You would have thought the opposite, you know, but mm -hmm. that's not the case. So anyway, so like that, that skill is completely obsolete. So I guess the point is distinguish yourself by making compelling images that's how you can do it and i think that if you make images that move people um you know 
I mean, how many images are being made this year? What's the statistic? National Geographic came up with a statistic. I think 2019, it's like 28 billion images in yeah. the U.S. alone. Probably trillions, you know. <laughs> no, it's in the billions yeah. still, but yeah. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Well, Dan, man, um, can't thank you enough. Like I said, I've been following your work for years and really appreciate the passion you bring in this. You're just a photo junkie, man, and it comes off. So I really appreciate you uh, taking time. Let me come down to your studio, dude. Yeah. And for people listening, um, where's the best place to check out your work? Uh, I would say just there's a pretty big internet presence, you know. Like if you just Googled my name, the uh, website and other stuff comes up. So. And you're on you're on uh, Instagram at uh, I think Dan was it Dan Winters or Dan Winters? Yeah, I think photo. it's Dan Winters photo. Yeah, uh, I'll Instagram. link it. I'll link him. People can go check it out. And uh, thanks so much. You bet. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to today's podcast with Dan Winters. Hope you enjoyed it. I actually wanted to tell you guys about a new image transfer tool I've been using lately called PicDrop. Uh, PicDrop's a really great tool for when you need to send off your files to your clients or whoever you're working with. You can create uh, private galleries, different folders, and your clients can actually communicate with you and uh, write notes on the photos you send to them and rate them. Uh, I've been using it for a little over a month now and really enjoy it. It's kind of just helped me keep everything organized in one spot. Um, for years, I was using like zip folders and WeTransfer and Dropbox and things like that. But with PicDrop, it was actually designed by photographers, so they really understand what photographers need. And like I said, I, I've been enjoying my experience using it. And with today's podcast, if you enter the promo code PHOTOBANTER, you're going to get three months free when you sign up at PicDrop.com. Um, so definitely go check it out and let me know what you guys think. And remember to enter the promo code PHOTOBANTER, and you'll get three months free when you sign up at PicDrop.com. And also, it's got to give a big thank you to our guest, Dan Winters. Um, like I said, I've just been a big fan of his work for years. Um, he just has a real passion for photographer for photography and just the history of photography. Uh, the guy has just shot so much, and uh, it was a real pleasure talking to him and getting to interview him down in Texas at his uh, really unique studio. So can't thank him enough. Um, definitely go check out Dan's website at danwintersphoto.com, as well as his Instagram at danwintersphoto. Lots of cool work up there. And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts every Monday on iTunes, Spotify, as well as on my website, alexgagnephoto.com, and on my Instagram, at alexgagnephoto. Thanks so much for listening, and take care.